This podcast is powered by The Plug. Hey there, podcast listeners. Appreciate you tuning into the show. As always, don't forget we're on all your favorite podcast apps. So wherever you're listening, make sure you subscribe to get future episodes. Make sure you leave a five-star review. That way others can find the show too. And make sure you give us a shout on social media. We love your feedback. We thrive on your feedback. And there's nothing we love more than getting that DM from you that shares how the show has helped you and impacted your life. We've gotten many of them and um, definitely love hearing those stories. We're here to bring you community. We're here to bring you um, Colorado community from the local entrepreneurs, subject matter experts, CEOs, um, reps, uh, people who give back to the community in a number of ways with this platform, Mile High Mentors. And I have a great show for you today. My friend, Mark Dancer stops by. Mark Dancer is literally the author on innovation, B2B innovation, business-to-business innovation. He's the author of Innovate to Dominate, speaker, entrepreneur. Uh, He founded the Network for Business Innovation to drive awareness, advocacy, and excellence for B2B innovation and to enable an exchange of ideas between leaders on business transformation technology adaptation, social impact, and community engagement. And if y'all couldn't tell, I was nerding out quite a bit during this podcast. I love the, I love, uh, love chatting on these topics, and I know you're going to love it just as much as I do. Please let me know what you think. Also, before we dive in, if you are interested in partnering up, sponsor, sponsoring Mile High Men- Mentors, or you even have guests that you recommend for the show, Make sure you send us an email, milehighmentors at gmail.com. Again, milehighmentors at gmail.com. You can also send us a message on social media, wherever you find us, uh, milehighmentors at gmail.com. You want to sponsor the show. You want to partner up. We're always looking for local collaborations. And uh, again, we're here for the community. So um, let us know what we can do to support you, support your efforts, all that good stuff. And with all of that, without fur- without further ado, man, having a struggle talking here, coming off the holiday weekend. Without further ado, please welcome my friend Mark Dancer to the Mile High Mentors podcast. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you or your company are looking to jump into the podcast world, now is the time. The Plug Agency is here to connect you to the full power of podcasting. You just record and leave the rest to us. The people are listening and want to hear from you. Theplug-agency.com. That's theplug-agency.com. Click the link in the episode description for an exclusive offer. Well, yeah, so uh, um, did did you, uh, how long have you been doing a lot of speaking? Do you just gotten more aggressive with that recently or? Okay. It's, no, it started a long time ago. I, I started consulting in 1989 mm-hmm. and uh, immediately started speaking in front of clients for presentations, right? And then that just became association meetings and events and things like that. 
right? so I've been doing it for a long time. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. awesome. Did you always see yourself being a speaker? No, in your no, I'm years? kind of a natural introvert. <laughs> I like the side of my business where I get to go home and work alone and not be with anybody. Yeah. So I had to learn how to uh, uh, be comfortable in social situations and how to give a speech. And, you know, I bombed a few times. But uh, you kind of feel your way and you figure out your style and you get through it. Definitely. Right? You well, have that, to tank. You have to tank once or twice just to that's right. That's experience right. it. Right. And the big the big thing for me is I like, I'm a bit like an actor when I'm speaking. Yeah. I like emotional contact with the audience. So sometimes I'll go, I'll give a, a line and ask them to applaud <laughs> just to kind of draw them into the conversation. Yeah. Making them show that they're real and they're live out there listening to me. So, yeah, speaking is, is a good, is part of what I do. It's a yeah. Big part. It's very interesting you consider yourself an introvert and we've had this conversation a lot with people who from the outside appear to be these very big grandiose personalities but then you really ask them about it and it's like oh yeah I'm an introvert and I I'm the same way like I would I, I I love doing that and being an actor you know when I do content and on stage and with people but it's like when it, when it comes down to it, I'm like man I'm exhausted I just want to remove myself it's and hard like it's you hard know, yeah yeah my preference nowadays is I, at a number of the associations that I'm giving talks at about innovation. I'll give a keynote uh, kickoff comments for maybe 30 minutes or so. And then I prefer to do um, uh, panel discussions where I might have somebody from the industry, another thought leader, and kind of engage them in a conversation and then do maybe roundtable discussions mm. where the people who've been listening all day are working on things and kind of facilitate that. I think it's a better way of getting or achieving my learning objectives, helping the audience learn than just broadcasting at them as a speech. Mm. Why do you feel that is? I think people get- That formatting. I think people kind of tune out after a while, mm-hmm. right? They of someone of, just talking right, exactly. in a vacuum. Exactly. Yeah. It's a bit like why podcasts, I think, are better than reading books in some ways, right? Because if you, you know, a speech is, is, is live and you can show some emotion, but it's still one way, right? Mm-hmm. And if you're doing a podcast and it's an interview back and forth, the audience has the opportunity to hear both parties, the questions asked, the answer, they can see the emotion. And I think they, I think we naturally learn that way versus a speech, which is, yeah, it can be helpful, but you know, it's not as helpful. Yeah. You can, and everyone retains information differently too, mm-hmm. right? I think some people can pick it up and like take it away. Like me, when I do a book, I got to listen to the audiobook and then read it and then go back to the audiobook and everything. And so it's a process. It's, right? it's definitely a definitely. process, right? Learning isn't something you just absorb, mm-hmm. right? If, if that was the case, we could leave our uh, TV and our podcast on all night long when we're sleeping yeah. <laughs> and be really, really smart in the morning, right? So you have to actually be engaged. Right? Definitely. And so as a speaker, I try to think about how can I engage the audience, right? Another thing I'm doing now for speeches like that, for industry association speeches, is I'm sending out a, a survey, kind of a 10 survey question in advance. And just asking them how likely they think their industry is for disruption, how ready they are. And I have a few kind of diagnostic questions on where disruption might come from. And then I take that and I'm turning that into a paper. And it's not a research paper where I'm sharing with the, the audience and I'm speaking of what I think will happen. I try to identify seven or 10 questions that the, uh, the audience might want to think about and pick which are the most important questions for them. And then underneath the question, I have a little bit of research from Innovate to Dominate do some more research. I'll share some of the uh, the responses from the online survey, right, and send it out to the audience in advance so they can come prepared from the very first moment of the day when they're all together to know how to listen and to know what to think and participate in the discussions. 
which I think is another way to make meetings very effective. Do you find people right. are actually filling it out and taking the time yeah. to do it before, before yeah. this talk? Yeah, we, we have a pretty good response rate. These are people you that You do have, it digitally or like? You know, use, use the online survey tools yeah. and send it, send it out. Right. And then I always ask. Not a lot of speakers do that. Survey right. the mm-hmm. audience beforehand, which you think would be. You think you know, it would be good, right? Yeah. A lot will talk to a few people and I do that, mm-hmm. right? But what I try to do, particularly if I have time, is I will send it. Uh, I'll start with a few kind of introductions from the people, the organization that I'm speaking for. And I'll call up those people and get the conversation going, get them to talk about their business and what's changing. I'll use some of that language to modify the online survey a little bit, and then I send it out. And my last question in the survey is, if, if, I can, if you're open for me calling you and talk to you, please provide your contact information. And then I reach out to everybody nice. that volunteers that and try to talk with them, right? Yeah. For me personally, if I walk in, You into, probably drum up business out of that too. Uh, a little bit, yeah. a little bit. I don't try to sell consulting anymore. My, uh-huh. I, I renamed my business the Network for Business Innovation, yeah. heavy on the network, right? So I just try to connect with people and show an interest, show them that if they want to talk about something, that I'm willing to share what I know and ask them questions too, right? So it can be a kind of a thought-provoking conversation. Yeah, and you're able to do that too. And part of the reason why I wanted to have you on this podcast, you're a true subject matter expert and a lot of people can't shift on the fly when they're speaking at a event. So, you know, you get to the event, five or six people tell you this, and you're like, oh, I should restructure, reformat something. Like yeah. you're innovating yeah. in the moment yeah. almost in a way. It's very, very relevant. but. Uh, I think a lot of people and a lot of speakers I've seen, they have their like, everything's the same, no matter where they're at, no matter right. where they're speaking, right. they just have their scripted out, right. you know, I can't do that. pitch and everything. If, yeah. if I get them in front of an audience. But it's and because the they're not speaker. true experts right. and they're not true like deep dive subject matter experts that they can just even free ball and spitball yeah. on their stuff. And, and whatever they're going to present, they don't really care if they're engaged with the audience, right? Mm-hmm. I also like if it's a two day event and I'm on the second day, I like to show up the first day. Yeah. And just be around. Right. So when I stand up there, what the energy and I like to feel like I'm connected. Right. I took a a speech class in high school way back when my senior year and I had not done that before. They put me on the debate. Well, not the debate team. It was the speech team. Right. And I had never done it. But the they thought I was good because I stood up and talked on stage giving a speech like I was talking to someone. And I was like, well, it's the only thing I know how to do. I don't know how to give a speech. So I just talk. And that's been kind of my style all along. It's just to, you know, I'm organized, but I don't I don't read from a script. I try to know what the questions the audience has are and then try to address them in a way that's conversational from the stage. Do you do like slides and and presentations in your your talks? I used to do a lot of uh, speeches that were or or events that were more education focused. And Mm -hmm. those would be pretty detailed slides and I would have handouts. I'm skewing away from that and showing more pictures and slides with less content on it because mm-hmm. I have a lot to say. And if there's a lot on the slide and, I'm, and I have a lot to say, the audience has to kind of figure out who to listen to, right? Are they gonna read the slide or listen to what I have to say? So my slides are still kind of customized for that audience, but a lot less content on them. Definitely. What mm-hmm. advice would you give to other speakers, whether they're veteran or just getting started to be more engaging? when they're speaking? Uh, I think it's it starts with getting all the prep we've been talking about, mm-hmm. right? And then show your passion, right? You know, think about what's important to you and be willing to uh, advocate for that from the stage, right? Let people see what interests you, mm-hmm. right? It, to me, it's not so much about entertaining the audience. It's about, I have things that I think are important that they should hear, and so I try to show that, right? And I show that by my mannerisms on the stage. 
sometimes I will, even if it's a large audience and there's no way for them for to ask me questions, I will give them the opportunity to ask me questions, mm-hmm. right? And then if there's no if there's no response, I'll say, well, was that the wrong question, a stupid question, or you just don't have an answer, yeah, right? And or you don't have a question for me, and kind of get going back and forth that way. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, yeah. So you just kind of roll with it on the fly. That's pretty yeah. interesting too. And you can't, but, yeah. You also can't sell. Yeah. Right? So, yeah. Yeah. You can't be too salesy. But but yeah. but like if if you're passionate about a subject uh, about a subject matter, right, or whatever topic. Um, then that's going to do it. Like, right. so like be passionate about and, and authentic about what you're talking about. Right. I put up my email it. at the end, right? Not my uh-huh. phone number, but my email. And I tell uh-huh. people that if they have any questions, they want to reach out to me to, to send me a note. Yeah. Right. And I, and now what I've also started doing after a speech, when the organization that I'm speaking for sends out kind of the, maybe a recording or a summary, whatever their follow-up is, I give them a calendar link, right? So oh, they, yeah, yeah. So they can schedule some time with me. Yeah. And I can know I know I can do this because for the last couple of years, at the end of every speech, I've been begging people to call me, right? And I've had five. In Interesting. Two years. Yeah. I've offered to thousands, and I've had five. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what I I've started doing more recently, and um, this may strum up some ideas for you is. We do this uh, giveaway in our marketing. We do like a five night, four day tropical cruise giveaway, which now we probably couldn't literally give them away. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we might have to come up with something different. But before this whole virus outbreak, yes, yes. Um, we uh, we did that. And so what I'd do at the beginning of any conference or wherever I'd speak at, I'd say, hey, here's what you want to do by the very beginning. Take a picture of me, grab a quick video, you know, uh, Instagram story, Snapchat, anything, tag me on it, use hashtag I want to win, write a little snippet about what you learned from my my uh, piece today, and uh, I'll pick one of you at the end of the month to win a tropical cruise. Oh, I love my that. My engagement post um, speaking has skyrocketed, and, and, and that's the thing too, is then you get them connected with you on social, yep. they're immediately linked in there, and then you're putting content out and then it just kind of keeps everybody within the like your ecosystem. Yeah, yeah I love that. I think it's a um, great idea. That's been working well too. And then even further benefit, you may be in a group of 20 people yeah. and three people do it and then they tag you, share it out. And all of a sudden 10, 20, hundred people in their network see it. Yep. And just from that, yep. that's like how I've kind of figured out how to scale the speaking engagement is to get right. other people sharing your stuff. Right while you're there on social. Well, I'm, I'm gonna wrap that into a, a new plan I have, right? So the, the book that I've written is called Innovate to Dominate, the 12th edition in the Facing the Forces of Change series, published by the NAW Institute for Distribution Excellence. Wait, was that the whole thing? <laughs> and that, no, I've got more. No, no, that's it. That's okay, it. That, okay. That's it. Um, you had but, the whole, the whole yeah. title or the whole title. That was it. That okay. was it. But yeah. NAW the, is the National Association that represents distributors, Yeah. right? And this report, has been out, has been published every three years for, well, this is the 12th edition, right? So the previous editions were terrific. They were more of a report on trends. We're really trying in this one to make uh, the connection between all of the things that are changing how business is done, technology things, social trends, the way organizations operate. We're trying to make, the NAW calls those forces. So we're trying to make the connection between those forces, those trends, and how you can actually innovate. Right. And this is really, really important because a lot of the when I'm working for NAW, it's distributors. 
and distributors are incumbent legacy businesses, right? And so yeah. back to the idea that you just gave me, what I, what I really want to do is I want to encourage them to tell their innovation stories, right? And for two reasons, right? One is that if you innovate and you're serving another business and you don't tell your story, it's like a tree falling in the forest. You haven't really innovated. Yeah. And the second reason is because as incumbent businesses, their story has already been told. Right, because if anybody talks about disruptors and disruption, and you talk about incumbent businesses, you kind of think they're all roadkill, and they're not. Right, distribution is a six trillion dollar industry, and our GDP is about twenty trillion. Right, there's two hundred eighty thousand distributors with almost six million employees. Right, right. So, they need to tell it's a their big, story. Big space that yeah. you're touching yeah. here. Yeah. And so back to your thought was that, and I, I'm sure a lot know. of people, anyone listening right now, like even a student to a CEO entrepreneur, um, don't realize how much this industry really touches no, everything, no, every no. piece of their life. Every type of business that exists, whether it's a contractor, a restaurant, a hospital, a university, you can think of them as businesses because they buy things, a factory, every business buys something from a distributor, hmm. right? So they touch every, every business. And if our economy is trying to uh, if it's important that our economy uh, become innovative to stay competitive and it react to social trends, buying preferences, the way people want to live, which is part of innovation too, right? Distributors really can have a big impact in the way that we all do our work and live our lives. And that's kind of my call to action. So what I'd like them to do if they tell their story is to put hashtag innovate to dominate yeah. on it, right? And that can maybe uh, give the opportunity for people to look for that as a hashtag see what others are doing and kind of use social media as a way to encourage the community of distributors to really get their story out there. Definitely. And so I like your idea about giving it rewards of some sort for that to encourage people to do that. Yeah. And I'll wrap that into you it. You got to get them to tag you somehow because that's really where the amplification mm -hmm. for you is going to come in and the yep. reach for it because a lot of people are likely not searching hashtag innovate to dominate. Right. They're probably searching distributors in the US or USA uh, distributors or something like that. So you should, um, and you can literally go to LinkedIn and look in the hashtag yep. function, see what's big in in the distribute that's being used a lot in, in terms of hashtags. Yep. It could even be yep. hashtag um, business innovation. Yeah. Right. Yes. And and have them use that because that's where it's really going to get found. Excellent. Rather than innovate Excellent. to dominate. Yeah. Yeah. I write. Yeah, a, a I write. I write about disruption and digital transformation. Yeah. But I need help. Digital transformation <laughs> too. I mean, digital transformation yeah. is a big buzzword. That can yeah. mean marketing. It, that can mean your yeah. topic of discussion. It's very interesting. Yeah. Let um, for, for those who are listening, give us a step back. How did you get to where you're at in your career today? So I was born in a small town in Kansas. I'll skip 20 or 30 years. I was in Please, the yeah, bring... I, I, I was in the Navy, uh -huh. and I got out of the Navy. Thank you for your service. Oh, thank you very much. Much appreciated. Yeah. Truly. Yeah. True, and much appreciated yeah. you, truly. If there's something I yeah. wish I would have done at some point and served our country, but it's like, man, I, 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 I'm super grateful and appreciative for those who do and, yeah. and have. It's, it's, a, it's a calling. It's a mission, right? Yeah. So it can be, it can be great. I um well, I grew up in a Navy family. I was in the Navy. I decided to get out and see what the rest of the world was like. I went to Oregon and lived there for a few years because I like outdoor activities, mm -hmm. which is why I'm back in Colorado now. But in Oregon, I worked for a company called Spectrophysics. And at the time, they had, oh, I don't know, several different div divisions. And every division did uh, la lasers of some sort. Mm -hmm. 
And so we made what were called teeny heeny lasers, which is tiny helium neon lasers, kind of the insider story, but we really did data capture devices. So it was handheld scanners and barcode scanners, supermarket scanners, yeah. that kind of Not thing. Not like heat lasers. Nah. Like. No, no, data uh, capture. Yeah. Right? Like you've seen, if you don't look yeah. in the in the barcode scanner in your grocery store, but that's what we made. <laughs> right. You hear that, kids? Don't look in the barcode <laughs> scanner, whatever you do. Yeah, a funny thing about your eyes, they, <laughs> they multiply the effect of lasers. So definitely don't look. Wow. Right. Okay. Um, so while I was Duly there. Duly noted. Our business was, I don't know, we were 50, 60, 70 million dollars, something at that time, but we were very successful. And what made us successful was, yeah, it was the technology and other things. It was new at the time, but it was also in, uh, we embraced a new channel, which was uh, value-added resellers of point of sale data capture devices. Mm -hmm. I was in manufacturing, but I had the opportunity to kind of work with other organizations. And that fascinated me, right? It was the go-to-market strategy that really made them successful. And at the time, they had a huge share in the United States, in Europe, and in Japan. Hmm. And it was all due to their channel strategy. So I decided to go to business school after learning a little bit about business. So this was right after the mm -hmm. Navy, and then yep. you went and worked uh, for this company? Yep, for about two and, or three years in uh -huh. Oregon. I applied to Kellogg at Northwestern because they had a, a professor there named Lou Stern, hmm. who was all about channels. So I went there. I had a great time, and then I went to work for a channels boutique firm. I can get a mission and stay on mission. That, yeah, that's kind of me. Clearly, right? yeah. And then I did that. I went to a series. You stayed of, focused, very focused yeah, in that. I like channels. Yeah. It was sort of a. Um, there are a lot of more popular things to study. This kind of niche yeah. channels. That's why I like um, B two B too. Yeah, it's a very like everyone's talking about the sexy Nike brands, right? You know, but it's kind of the brands it's, behind the brands. It's nuts and bolts, and it's yeah. bigger than B two C in some ways, yeah. right? Oh, hundred percent. So, so yeah. I just did that. I worked for a boutique firm, became a, a principal consultant. I was part of a startup firm. I went to a work firm that did um, heavy analytics for Salesforce design. I was part of an HR consultancy. And throughout this time, I wanted to do channels, and it wasn't always the mission of the organization. So things eventually, you know, parted. Yeah. And then I decided to uh, to start my own business. And huh. I've been doing that for a few years now. Yeah. How long ago you started your own business? Well, probably about eight years ago, six years ago. In between, I went to work for a client for a couple of years. That's why Got I it. have to think about how long it was. That happens a lot with consultants, right? You start consulting, and then you just kind of end up getting absorbed in the organization yeah. at some point in time. Yeah. My, my, I went to work for a, a client and a senior vice president of global channel management. And it was great because I could jet around the world and kind of teach channels. And channels is all about creating, and you're talking indirect channels, selling through a distributor or a retailer. It's all about creating a win-win business relationship, right? And so I learned all the tools to do that in my consulting career in the United States. And then when I went abroad, I can kind of apply that, but it was in a different culture, right? So the rules kind of had to morph a little bit. Mm. And that was pretty fun because it was a sort of a human, social-driven reason to why you got the different answers, right? It was very exciting. So in layman's, what is channels and why is it so important? Channels is the way you go to market, right? And mm -hmm. it starts with, uh, you have to start with the customer, right? And how they want to buy. And that means how they find out about products or services, how they evaluate them, how they shop for them, how they want to pay for them, how they want to have that product or service delivered, what they expect to do kind of in an ongoing way with it. And then that loops around perhaps to another purchase. So you have to start with the customers. And then channels. The end customers, yes, the, the end, end consumers. The bit, well, and I'm all B2B. Yeah. So the business is the customer, right? Right. 
but you have to understand what their mission is. And what does right? B2B mean? Business to business. Yeah. Yes, yes. <laughs> um, so you have to understand sort of um, what their business objectives are as a business, as an individual, what they're trying to accomplish, how your product enables their success, right? Channels is really about creating the exchange of value, which means I have a product or a service and I can give that to the client in return for them providing value back to me. And the most obvious thing to say is they pay for it. Hmm. But really, if you have a really robust channel strategy, you're really thinking about a very strong uh, B2B kind of exchange of value. And the customer can also help you with things with uh, loyalty or word of mouth recommendations or letting you work closely with, with them enough that you can see where they're going, you can design your next product. So it's really, channels is really about that, creating the exchange of value between one business and another. Hmm. And then you design your channel to do that. Right. It can be a mixture of retailers and distributors and Salesforce. There's all kinds of retailers and distributors and Salesforce. You have to figure all that out and you have to figure out how to structure it, how to motivate it, how to guide it. Uh, but what's interesting today is that I have a whole big bag of tools that I've developed over 30 years to know how to do all those for any industry, any product, any service, any time. And because of things that are going on, like the emergence of virtual marketplaces, uh, gig economy things, uh, artificial intelligence. Mm -hmm. How would you, uh, virtual, uh, yeah. um, sorry to interrupt, no, but, please, but, go ahead. but the uh, virtual marketplaces, what, what, what format does that take? You mean like Amazon? Or yeah. Yeah, Al we talked about Alibaba. Yeah. Alibaba. Yeah, Alibaba. Yeah. So Amazon and Alibaba are virtual marketplaces. You can yeah. also they're also called platform businesses. Right. Kind of a jargony thing, but it's important. So I'm thinking about Amazon business, not Amazon. Right. So Amazon started as a B to C business to consumer business, and now they're moving into the B to B space. Alibaba started as a B2B player. They're pure B2B. Mm. If you want to buy shampoo on Alibaba you have to buy a, a pallet load, right? Because yeah. it's for businesses, right? And they're virtual marketplaces, right? They're, if you want to, uh, to buy your product with convenience and electronically and digitally, you can do that on their sites, mm -hmm. right? And so you said Alibaba, what were we talking about? They're changing, they're going to consumers as well? No, no. Or they're coming to the U.S. market? They're coming, that... coming to the U.S. market. Got it. So Alibaba started years ago when, it's topical now, but when yeah. the supply chain from China was getting started, Yeah. Right. they provided a way, if you were a manufacturer in the U.S. and you wanted to source your product in China, they would make those connections, mm. right? And then what they say is that more recently, their very good customers in the United States have asked them to provide uh, the opportunity to sell their products and buy their products for businesses in the United States and to help businesses in the United States maybe sell globally, right? So they're, they're now taking an approach. Becoming which, a platform yeah, for yeah, distributors yeah. To, ho so, to host on, basically. Right. So the, Interesting. The thing, why haven't they done that years ago? Uh, I think it's just, why doesn't anything happen right away? Yeah. Because right? you're busy doing other things, <laughs> yeah, I yeah. think, right? Fair enough. And they've been a very, very successful company, right? How big are they? Oh, gosh. I don't know. Huge. Like trillions or, or billions? Bigger than Amazon. Really? Bigger yeah, than Amazon? I'm, I'm pretty sure. You're kidding. I'm terrible with numbers. I'm an engineer, but I'm terrible with numbers. So <laughs> I'll take that as a look up and yeah, I'll tell you afterwards you're an whether engineer. I'm wrong or not. Yeah. Yeah, but they are huge. Uh-huh. So in, in the world of um, channels today, right? You're the, too friendly to be an engineer. Well, I'm just kidding. There's some nice engineers. There's lots there. of nice engineers. <laughs> there, there, are, there are civil engineers. 
Ah, I see what you did there. You see what I get? I get yeah, what yeah. you did there. A little flashback engineering humor. Yeah, right. That's I'm no, sure. I'm sure no you have work. a whole uh, whole book. You have a whole book of like civil engineering. Oh, yeah. there you go. That could be your yeah. next book. There we go. I was a mechanical yeah. engineer. So, yeah, yeah. That's hilarious. So today, I didn't to, know they were that big though. That's wild. Yeah, Alex. they're they're a very large company, and I should know the stats. I just don't. So what's the no, benefits yeah. of the I mean, U.S. consumer of Alibaba expanding out to the U.S. market? Yeah, and so I'm thinking about businesses, right? I'm yeah. B2B. So if you are a business who wants to go to market and you have a sales force, maybe you sell through distributors if that's appropriately. Maybe you sell through retailers if that's appropriate for your product. Right now, the, if you want to be on a virtual marketplace, which may be very important because a lot of your customers may be trending there to buy at least some or many of their purchases, up till now, there's only really, as a business, B2B, there's only been really one option in the United States, and that was Amazon Business, right? So if you, now there's Alibaba. So if not, and their offerings are different, but there is a choice, right? And choice is always good, mm. right? Oh, definitely. Choice is always good, but Amazon's got the, they hit it right at the right place. It, I don't think we'll ever, ever see it again, just yeah. like that. It's really interesting. And B2B is harder than B2C, yeah. right? So... You really uh, think so? Oh, I think selling to consumers story. is much harder. Yeah, but if you make the decision, yeah, though, right, or maybe you ask your spouse. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. And and you the, can you can. I'm not a consumer marketer, but you can position your product on image and awareness and other things. I'm not saying it's 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 B2B is hard. The reason why B2B is harder, I think, I could be wrong, but from my perspective, it's harder, is that any organization, any business that buys products often has multiple decision makers. Yeah. They have a formal approval process. They demand proof of value, right? They they expect you to carry some of their risk. If they have a problem, they expect to have the power that you can come out and solve it, right? And so it takes, um, um, you know, more complicated solution. And they don't buy the same way every time either. Sometimes they buy for convenience. They might buy the same product in a repetitive way, mm-hmm. right? So a thousand a year, a thousand a month, a thousand a day. They have. Uh, they might be looking for a solution. They have a problem that they need to solve, and they want to buy a solution. They don't know what they need. They might be doing R and D, and they want some collaboration with the supplier what they're going to build in the future. So it's very complex. Yeah. And I've I've talked to numbers of people that are from kind of the disruption space. I don't mean this literally, but you know, conceptually, they work for Jeff Bezos, but they haven't made their own millions and billions yet. So they look at B2C as being done. So they're trying to make their hay in B2B and they're finding out it's hard, right? Yeah. And so there's a lot more of companies that are starting to, if they're bringing a disruptive service to the B2B space, they're looking at the legacy players and say, maybe we can collaborate, we can partner. I bring the, the anything is possible mentality. I've got this disruptive service. I have venture financing. Mm-hmm. Uh, what you bring is existing customer relationships. You know how the market works. So let's kind of collaborate and, and work on things. And right. that's, that's different than a virtual marketplace putting a mall out of business. Yeah. Like there's no collaboration in that. Well, and that's the thing. That's why I say it's a little, I, and m- maybe easier isn't the word, but different. And, it is and different. definitely yeah. is more complex, but yeah. it's it, it like the B2B sale is much more of like a collaborative sale yeah. with that person versus like consumer sale. Yeah. You know, like I got to sell you this product and then I got to keep selling this product over and over and over again generally because of the complexities of a B2B sale, you get your foot in the door. Right. And then if you can prove yourself, you've got those, yeah. cut, like businesses move slow and they don't like to change 
Um, and so if you can get in into that, then you're there. Like you've That's got exactly residual right. yeah. revenues yeah. and opportunities coming from those. It's like this exponential sale versus like the direct to consumer sale. Right. In a lot so of ways. It probably but, is wrong for me to say that B2B is harder and, and my many, many friends from business up school front, it's harder, who, I who went B to C, yeah. I'm sure they're like throwing daggers yeah, at me right <laughs> probably. Now because B to C is is very hard. Yeah, because right? you could do one you could do one meeting a day and totally like and and or or or, yeah. or just that one meeting could totally like quadruple your business yeah. overnight. The, and that's the, the crazy thing about it too. The interesting thing so about, exciting. about B2B right now, because uh -huh. every business, again, whether you're a restaurant, a contractor, a factory, a hospital, every business is is faced with the challenge of what do I become in today's world, mm. right? How do I adopt digital technologies? How do I adopt artificial intelligence? How do I deal with the fact that the buying preference of the coming generations are different than the old generations? Other sort of social movements, conscious capitalism, there's all kinds of things going on, and every business is thinking about that. So what's really interesting is that B2B suppliers, right? This could be a company who makes pumps, or it could be a software company that provides a software solution. It could be a company who provides logistic services, whatever it is. They have the opportunity to kind of work with customers, those businesses, and jointly figure out what the future holds. Mm. And it's a, it's a bit like a mentoring relationship in some ways, if I can use that word, if that's okay, right? Because <laughs> mentoring isn't telling. It's about, I have some expertise that may be relevant for you. Let me kind of, let us work together and kind of figure out how to get to the future, right? That's, I think, is good mentoring. It's not telling. Mm. It's kind of coaching. It's a mutually synergistic yeah, relationship. It definitely. Yeah. Definitely. I hear that too from other people do lots of, and I do as well, mentoring for like the university and stuff like that. It's like, I learn so much and I feel like I gain so much than like what I'm doing to mentor right. other people and other people express that too. So yep. same I'm, with the business relationships. Yeah. I've, al I've um, always been interested in providing coaching and mentoring to people in the workplace. Right. Mm -hmm. And I usually tell the folks I'm very open to that and I have one requirement. And that is, I ask them how much work they expect from me, and they'll tell me something, right? How mm. much time they want. And then I'll say, well, you got to put in twice that. Yeah. Right? So you, you have to come prepared if you want me to help you. Got right? this phone ring. Oh, hold on. Not that's me. Not you. That's this sucker right here. That's Maybe so that's funny. one of my friends, consumer friends, calling in to, yeah. to take exception to something what I said. What is going on with it? We, you know what's funny? That's the first time that's ever happened in this podcast ever. Sorry guys. First time in this this podcast in the studio. Or, or your whole in the studio. While we're okay. doing the podcast, we got the phone. <laughs> Those of you guys listening, there's actually a phone in here to call in. And so I think we're probably just getting called. We got our first caller on the show by the way. We probably should work that in. That'd be awesome. Yeah. Um uh, what was I saying? Oh, so what's interesting too about the world of B2B, which you're such a great guy to study and follow for anyone in wherever you're at in your life. Um, to study Mark, see what he's doing is like, I I went to university more recently. I graduated from Metro State University here in Denver. Yep. And I found, I mean, this was only I graduated in 2017. Yep. And not eighty five percent of all the subject matter material is towards consumer marketing. That's right. Starting That's a business true. and selling to consumers. That's like. I was so astounded because my dad had al already been in the world of B2B, yeah. which is what brought me yeah. into it. Why do you think that is? Hmm. I don't know. That's a good question. I think I think it's um, 
it's sexier. It's sexier, hundred percent. You can see it. Yes, right? very Every, true. Everybody experiences creating a product products. and innovating right. a product and inventing a product and then selling and marketing. Right. But the channel side of things, there's no real deep dive into that. And yeah. I'm sure a lot of universities probably even touch it. Yeah. But aren't like go start. A, here's how to start a B two B business. Here's how to start a B two C business. Right. Here's the differences right. and nuances of both. Uh, those aren't conversations being had. No. And so that's where I'm actually going to the university and like trying to, you know, promote more of this stuff in there. But um, it's just fascinating. You I know? used to do a, a fair amount of work, kind of channel strategy work for mm -hmm. startup companies. Right. And I used to point out to them that at as much product, as much effort as they put in designing their product or their service, mm. they have to put as uh, equal amount of effort in how they're going to go to market. Yeah. Right? Because the better bounce prep, better mousetrap thing doesn't really work, right? Yeah. You can't figure out. The other thing that startups do all the time is they'll say, oh, my market is huge. You know, it's it's $500 million. I only have to get 5% and I'm going to be able to retire early and go home. Yeah. We'll be fabulously successful. And then I say, which 5%? Right? And they say, what do you mean? I say, well, name the customers that represent the 5% and convince me that they want to buy your product, your service, if they've never heard of it. Mm -hmm. Not the others those that you need, right? And mm -hmm. that gets to a whole different level of discussion about how you're going to go to market. And then what do they do? The first thing they generally try to do is go sell it to the consumers rather than using their channel partners and like, hey, you've already got this market. Right. What do you think about this product? How would this be valuable? You know this marketplace better right? rather than doing all right. the strain of doing that. Or they go straight for funding and they haven't sold anything yet. Yeah. Uh, which I've, which is interesting because we've interviewed some VCs and some some uh, angel investors and stuff like that, and it's like you got to sell something right, <laughs> at right, some point right. in time. It's just right. I think it's also because of the sexy thing. People right. are trying to like go for the sexy exit, the unicorn company, yeah. but don't realize all the pieces that can go behind yeah. that or need to go behind that. That's what I mean by creating the exchange of value, mm. right? The the easiest way to think about creating the exchange of value is I have a product and you're going to buy it, mm. right? But in the business world. Custo business customers are buying a product or a service because it solves a problem, right? So the value you d you have the opportunity to align your product with the problem that they have to solve, right? That's the value you provide. And if you do a good a job of that, you can occupy a premium price position or you can reinvent how the product or service is, is priced in the market. Mm -hmm. If you really get aligned with how to solve uh, that customers, that business customers issues, and then what they give you in return is loyalty, they're a, they're a good business relationship, a good partnership, word of mouth, longevity, all those sort of things. Something I've noticed in studying some of the most successful companies out there, right? I think of like Tesla, yeah. right, for example, and Elon Musk uh, created the Cybertruck. You've seen this or, or heard I, of this? I've heard a little bit about it. The Cybertruck. It's like oh, is it, it's is, an electrical yes. vehicle. It literally looks like a... Like, I, like it's an weird. alien craft. <laughs> yes, it's yes. crazy. But <laughs> yes. here's the thing that's fascinating about that, and that I've studied from other people like him is they're selling it and they haven't even created it yet. Yes. They've yes. gone to market and sold it and haven't created anything yet. Raised hundreds of millions of dollars, didn't create a thing but a dummy mock up right. of it. And and uh, and it's and it's like people don't realize that's another go to market strategy or even a channel strategy. Right. It depends on your position in the marketplace. I mean, yeah. his his company is very much tied in him 
and his foresight and his innovation. Mm -hmm. And that's what people buy, right? And he's yeah. aligned with trends and great engineering, mm -hmm. right? But they, and I'm speaking out of school, I don't really know Tesla, but that's kind of my thought on that. Yeah, right? and even me as a small business, we created mm -hmm. a training program for LinkedIn and started selling licenses before we even built it yep. to get yep. feedback and, and just kind of do it bit by bit and build it in a stronger way. We had customers before we even had the yeah. product for it. I think there's an aspirate there's a there's a side of business buying which has to do with aspirations that people forget. Right. Yeah. So a lot of researchers when they're thinking about B2B, right? And they're trying to figure out their channels or what the next product is going to make, they do needs based segmentation, right? Where they try to figure out what that customer, that business customer needs right now and how can I fulfill that with a product or maybe a better product, right? But anybody who works inside of a business is a human. And they have aspirations, right? They have aspirations for what they want to accomplish on their job, where they want their company to go. Their jobs provides money so they can live their life the way they want to, put their kids through college, mm. right? And so I think that maybe this is Tesla, maybe in some ways, I don't know, I'm guessing, but they kind of deal very strongly with the aspirational side of business buyers. And that's very powerful. Yeah, we're going to Mars. Like, oh, yeah, that's so yeah. cool. That's Sign something I dreamt about Sign when me I was yeah, a kid. Yeah. And yeah. yeah, I'll throw a million dollars towards that. Um, <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. No, that's very interesting. That's a that's an interesting perspective for sure. Um, so, what is in it? You know, innovation and all this. It means a lot of different things to different people. What is what does innovation mean to you? Uh, it can mean a lot of things, but I like to think of it as doing things differently that have been done in the past, mm -hmm. right? And it can be around the customer experience, right? The thing that your product, your service provides for the customer. It can be about the business model that you deliver that through. It can be about the partnerships you create with with uh, distributors or other service providers, the way you go to market. But it's thinking about, I am going to achieve something that it hasn't happened before. It's kind of going further. The reality of innovation is there's a saying that innovation happens gradually and then suddenly, mm. right? The process of innovation is not waking, for most people, is not waking up with a really big idea that's going to revolutionize the market every, every overnight, right? It's about having a process and a culture and a sense of curiosity about I can do things differently and then working towards that kind of every day, right? And, and just holding out the North Star of we're looking to do something differently and then organizing your organization, your scientists, your engineers, your salespeople, your customers, your partners to kind of move towards that goal. How has it changed? Because um, companies have always been innovating since the Stone Ages. What is... What has changed in more recent years versus even like businesses 10 years ago in yeah. innovation? Well, it's hard to drive change when the world doesn't want to change, right? So Really? Yeah, yeah. The world doesn't. I feel like the world wants to change more Today. rapidly than ever. Yeah. That's what I was, that's what I was going to oh, say. Oh, got it, Today, got it. Yeah. With, the, with digital technologies, right? And all that means, right? Online shopping, artificial intelligence, mm -hmm. things like drones, 3D printing, that kind of technology enablement of change is, is driving exponential productivities and exponential change in, in uh, customer experiences, right? And then, but technology is enough. You also have the buyer, the in my case, the business customer who wants to do things differently too, right? So you've got this great enabler of technology. You've got these businesses that want to leverage that technology for, to be more competitive, to be more socially conscious. And it's just kind of a magic age, right? Mm. 
Uh, I think that all of the rules that I learned in my 20 or 30 years of channels consulting are guidelines nowadays, right? Because there's so many different possibilities about how you go to market, how you create customer experiences. Mm -hmm. Just It's a lot happening. It's really, really exciting and it's fun, mm. right? Because if you can think of a new idea in the way of a customer experience, the way to run your business, the way to create your partnerships, you know, you can you can get some traction. You can move forward. So mm -hmm. it's very exciting. But it's almost like uh, you used to be able to very much rely on your process and you'd be able to have that and your company would have that for 10, 15 years. You'd go to a public exit, you'd, you know, sell off and, and make a billion dollar corporation and still continue to do that. It's like companies can't do that yeah. anymore almost. It's yeah. because the environment is changing so rapidly the way buyers are buying so rapidly, even from this year to last year, I've noticed differences in conversations with yeah. people in yeah. sales conversations. Yes. It's like, um, you know, the way my dad has done business for years and years and years, and we do this, 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 and this, and this continues to propel things. My, it just, my headset just stopped working. Did I pull oh. something out? I think Maybe a little tech help. <laughs> I think the energy just blew can it. Can you still hear me? Am I on? I can am, hear you, am I, yeah. Am I? Because I'm not hearing this either. You're not hearing that. You're, you're a plug major. There we go. I fidgeted. Oh, I fidgeted. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, there's there's the the technical definition of disruption uh -huh. is that, and I won't get this exactly right because I'm not Clayton Christensen, who passed very recently. It was very sad. But he was the author of The Innovator's Dilemma. Huh. And so um, at a very light touch, you know, uh, I think he... Uh, thinks of the theory as disruption is coming from the outside and coming from small companies, right? And that's because, if, if I've got that right, if I'm doing justice to his legacy at all, that's because insiders, a business that exists today, maybe it started with a new idea, but once it operates as a business, it gets really, really good at doing the same thing over and over and over again, right? And there's, there's excellence in the way they execute for customers and there's efficiencies, and they get so caught up in that that it's, it's hard to change. Mm. And that's why disruption can come from the outside, from small and nimble companies, and can disrupt the way the business is done. I say that, I, I, I think that there's a, if I think of B2B innovation, that's like uh, insider disruption in a sense, right? It's, it's insiders within an industry, at the, from the leadership level, organically in a company, deciding that we are going to look for a problem that nobody thought could be solved or an opportunity that people didn't even know existed. We're just going to look for that. And then we're going to marshal the same forces that the outside disruptors have to make that happen, but we're going to do it in a way that kind of reinvents our organization, right? So to me, just another way to think about what innovation is, it's a mindset. It's a culture, mm. right? It's just not every company, it's not right for every company. It's not right for every leader. Um, to some extent, every company has to innovate somewhat today because the fundamentals on how business is being done are changing, right? But some companies will be on the leading edge. Some will be fast followers. Some will go in brand new directions. There's just a lot of those sort of things happening. And I know that the conversations I have now with leaders, I couldn't have had 10 years ago or maybe 15 years ago, right? Because they would have said, oh, that's nice, but it's kind of academic. Things aren't mm. going to change, right? Now it's much more common that I... I hear business leaders, whether they're a manufacturer or a distributor or, well, not so much retailers, they, they know changes here. But in the B2B side of thing, they'll say, 
People have been telling us that our world is going to change for the last, as long as I've been in business, for 30 years or so. But now it's true. Yeah. You know, and I don't know what to do. That's right? what people have always been saying yeah, since that's the early 1900s. Point. Right. But now it catches it up true. to them much quicker, right. probably. Yep. So there's like a fire under their ass in a way that they, you know, didn't could have just tabled off to the side for a right. number of years and then Glo slowly mm -hmm. adjusted. And globalization, uh, you know, contributes to this too, because even mm. if an industry, say in North America and the United States, decided it wanted to be kind of static and it liked the way the things that were running the way they could, you can have disruption come from others overseas and come to the U.S. because our market is open. And if you can offer customers, business customers, a compelling reason why they should buy a brand new product or a brand new service and it makes economic sense and they, they're convinced that you're going to be in business and you help them manage their risk, they'll switch. Mm -hmm. Absolutely will switch. Yeah. So well, It's like Alibaba and Amazon back to those two. Exactly. Is, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And, and, and the, choices are yeah. good for the consumers. Yep. Um, but uh, there's, yeah. So you, the conversations you're having with business leaders that you feel like they're glomming onto now more, what specifically are you guys talking about? Uh, I'm, do, I'm doing some work for the an association of food equipment manufacturers, hmm. right? So these are people that make manufacturers that make the uh, equipment that's in a kitchen, and they also make the tables and linens and forks and, and things in, in the restaurant, hmm. right? And innovation is happening all around uh, restaurants, right? The With, um, you know, uh, on-demand delivery by the ride-sharing services and something called ghost kitchens. And ghost kitchens. You ever heard I'm, that term? No. Ooh, very scary. No, a ghost kitchen is a kitchen without a restaurant. Huh. Right? And it exists, may, I think it exists maybe to serve a uh, ride-sharing service. It's going to take the food wherever you want it. But it also can, they can also exist as some of the big chains um, you know, as they start doing more and more that light takeout. Went out again, didn't it? Yes. <laughs> that was so funny. Well, no. No, did you think it went Ghost out? kitchens. <laughs> dun dun. <laughs> so they they, they uh, it's just a it's a high quality kitchen that can yeah. serve that doesn't have a restaurant. There yeah, are, yeah. Some of the concepts include, you know, healthy living for people who maybe can't afford their own personal chef. So that means know? a brick and mortar version yep. of a kitchen is also ultimately going to be disappeared or disrupted well, i don't think it, i don't think it'd be disappeared it's just uh -huh. sometimes it's excess capacity sometimes it's flexibility sometimes it's they get really really good at things mm. they can help a um, an established restaurant chain that's doing more and more takeout because of the on-demand delivery and, and their kitchen isn't really designed for that mm. and they don't really have the capacity to, to do that they can kind of outsource the to the ghost kitchen right mm. So, Interesting. So in this industry, this is common. This is pretty common right now, or this is kind of up it's on not, the. It's not uncommon. It's been around for a few years. I yeah. think it's. I, I'm not an expert on it, but I think it's. Some of them are still kind of struggling to find their way. Mm -hmm. But it's an innovation. It's a channel, su yeah. supply chain sort of innovation. Right? Yeah. So like Ocean Prime, big fancy restaurant downtown Denver. I don't know why I picked that, but yeah. Um, they uh they they uh can take delivery orders, but they just wouldn't create it in house. They'd have an outsourced kitchen yep. somewhere that yep. has all the recipes or yep. orders and because they maybe just their kitchen isn't turn... their kitchen isn't set up for that right yeah. they have too much capacity in that yeah. and that ghost kitchen could actually operate efficiently because it might work for several restaurants mm. downtown Interesting. right and so it's a way to scale yeah. your restaurant without yeah. having to scale your restaurant right because as a consumer you know you you go to restaurants but you also maybe want to use the ride sharing services to deliver food to you you know maybe you're going to have a um 
bunch of your friends get together and you're going to come from three or four different restaurants, you know, if you're all going to eat together, right? So that's kind of an example of innovation that's happening in the restaurant world on the consumer side. And so the equipment manufacturers are looking at this and they're saying, you know, we need to um, make sure we have a framework for understanding what's going on and how we can how we can adjust our products and services to meet the overall innovation and change that's happening in the channel. Mm -hmm. uh, so we're thinking about how to accomplish that for their members. And the other thing that they might want to do is to um, build the reputation of the manufacturers as un having foresight about the future of commercial kitchens, professional kitchens, and kind of do some branding for the industry, right? So this is an example of many, many businesses that are saying, that's what I said a moment ago, that we've been told for 30 years that change is coming to our, to our world, and it now seems like it actually is happening, uh, and I need a new way to think about it. So that's what we're working on, is right, what, what's happening, what are the, the, what's the framework, you know, what kind of things do you have to know about, how do you interpret those things, how do you turn them into an idea that you might want to act on. There's another saying in innovation right now, and strategy right now, that strategy is not a point in time, it kind of mm -hmm. goes to your comment about how fast things are changing. You, you really can't do, and a lot of times, a go-to-market strategy today and maybe spend you know three or six months studying and then execute it for the next 10 years. It's gonna Things already change in that. Right, so strategy is more fluid, it's more ongoing. It's about reaching out to, it's about building an innovation ecosystem of thought leaders and companies with service providers, talking with them, asking them what think might happen in your industry, based on their input, thinking what might happen in your industry, and kind of doing that in an ongoing fashion to figure out what changes you wanna to make to your products and services and how you go to market. So you have to be much, much more in tune uh, with uh, it in in a partnership sense. You have to be like very tight knit with them, whereas right. you could research it, sell it and kind of sit back, let it go out. You got to constantly be innovating. Yeah. And you can do yeah. that. You, you can decide that you're going to uh, wait and see how the future unfolds and then kind of change your business at the last moment. I personally, that's not my makeup. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. I think if you do that, you seed your future to others, right? So I think that there's another way to think about innovation is that uh, innovative businesses and innovative leaders have to have foresight, right? And foresight, I think, is a learnable skill. Mm -hmm. I define foresight as the ability to stand up in front of an audience for 15 minutes and talk about your industry and the future industry in a way that is very engaging. You don't have to be right right you don't have to say it's going to be exactly this way but you have to be able to, to tell that story in front of your customers your suppliers your partners maybe somebody who know doesn't know anything about your industry in front of your own employees if you can do that then you've got foresight and foresight leads to vision it leads to cultures it leads to change so kind of the toe mm -hmm. in the door for any company and any leader that wants to be innovator innovative is to think about your your skills around foresight. Mm, so interesting because we're going through these exercises now in our company as we're restructuring everything is like, I'm here with this vision right? and we have to innovate to dominate to right. like really right. to get to the next level. Otherwise we go out of business. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, 
Um, yeah. it's a, it's a make or break because of how quickly so many things have changed. If we stuck with a lot of our old models, we'd be totally out of business. Right. And that's what the dominate means, yeah. right? It means to own your future. Yeah. If you're an incumbent business, the general thinking is that- Who wants the to be there passively, yeah. right? If you're going to be there, yeah. be there to dominate. Think bold. Go yeah. big. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah, yeah. It's not going to happen overnight, but yeah. aim high, right? It's a time for doing that. Yeah. Did you check that book out, by the way? Which bold? Book? Peter Diamandis. Oh, you told me about Stephen that. Culler. No, it's on order yeah. from a certain online marketplace. Yeah, it yeah. hasn't arrived yet. No, that shelf's <laughs> not to be named. So what are what are yeah. companies, what are channels' biggest bottlenecks when it comes to the innovation part? Is it more so there been so much reliant on the EQ and the data side versus the, or I'm sorry, the IQ and data side versus the EQ and the intuition and foresight of what's coming down the road or something totally you know different than that yeah i think that that for channels that it, it's uh i think of it as precedents are prisons right so if you have a sales force and they've always sold a certain way mm. they could be terrific sellers value-added sellers but a lot of a lot just as one example a lot of change today is coming from data so data devices that you never thought were going to be smart are now being smart and throwing off data right almost everything right and that means that the the seller the selling organization and the company in total need to be able to kind of leverage that data right and talk about data and work on data that the customer owns and you own and pull that data right as a way of proving the value of the products that you offer and helping that customer innovate their business for the future mm. and those kind of analytical skills those kind of data skills are not necessarily resident in your sales force or your distributor partners, right? So it needs, it needs to happen, right? And it's not um, kind of uh, overnight change necessarily. It's not, you can't just sell your sales force or fire your sales force. You have to think about kind of changing them as you go. And, that, and that's difficult, right? Yeah, Press, I, I like how you phrase that too. The precedence is a prison yeah. in so many ways. It really is. because. Again, it's easy like you you get successful on something and then you end up kind of resting on the laurels of that. Right. And even when things are comfortable, you should be looking at like how to disrupt yourself. How right. like you should be thinking how other people are going to disrupt with where you're at before they are or the marketplace does. Right. Yeah. And so I think that, you know, if you're a company that wants to do that, there's a couple ways you do it. One is some organizations, bigger, smaller, creating innovation teams. Right, and they're telling them that they can't get involved in the day-to-day -day problems of the business, right? Mm -hmm. Which can be hard if you come from sales or engineering. Mm -hmm. They just throw them in a room, give them a case of beer, yeah. give them some cannabis, and then let yeah. them go to town on it. It won't work. It won't work. <laughs> and there's more states you can do the Stay cannabis. Stay creative. You know? Yeah, it's, it's it's not that. So you can do that, right? It's kind of a way to yeah. work around that. Google does that. Yep. Um, Google has innovation teams like that. A lot of the bigger yep. companies do, but you don't see that often like a small organization. No, it's hard. It's harder for them. Yeah. Right. Much harder for them. And that's why I'm working with associations because even even the largest mm -hmm. companies in some industries are not really that large of business. Right. So whether you're technically a small or medium sized business or just not big relative to the really big companies, there are some things that you're uh, association can help you do, right? Your industry association can help you do, right? So they, a lot of industry associations will have an annual meeting, right? And they will uh, invite a great slate of speakers one year and they'll have good conversations, good ideas. And then the next year they'll have a completely different slate of speakers because why would you go? It was the same people. 
but the reality is nothing happens in between. So the conversations I'm having now are, let's let's have a line of speakers that come maybe once a month, right? And let's talk about, let's call this series the future of our industry, and we'll invite people that are thought leaders or with innovative services. And it can be a dual learning opportunity. They might have a great idea, but they don't know how it applies in our industry. We know what works in our industry, but we don't know how that works. And so the idea is to kind of have that kind of uh, uh, virtual meetups, right, which is a two-way discussion, and then in parallel kind of collect the knowledge and ideas and share it and make that kind of an ongoing learning process. An association can do that for its industry, right, where maybe you know, not every company can do it for themselves. Right, and kind of move the industry along. That's the value of it then, if you're a small business. But the the I guess the other kind of quirk to that too is your competitors are also collecting yeah, that data yeah. versus having an internal um, creative you're disruption right. team. And so, um, you know, do but you, that, do you yeah. find pushback on that? Yeah, that's the always? nature of an industry association, right? right? Everybody yeah. in the association Your competitors is, are getting the same like content. You, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, but if you believe that uh, disruption has the momentum right now yeah. and your industry needs to catch up, that can create this sort of sense of collective effort, mm. right? And you may, not, you may not reveal your secrets, right? It's, it's an ongoing learning process, an ongoing strategy process. So every business that contributes to the process will take ideas away that they can implement in their business and kind of run with, right? Mm. So that kind of industry association is not gonna tell every individual business what to do they're gonna create the exchange of ideas. And it's something they already do. Right now they just do it at their annual meetings, you know, once every January, once every March. Let's do that in more of an ongoing fashion. And as they do that, if they use modern social media methods and they talk about the conversations they're having and how they're discussing the future of their industry. In their perspective right. versus... That's branding for the industry. Yeah, right? definitely, and, definitely, yeah. Right? They can invite customers too and other business partners to come and engage in that conversation. Right, and it moves everything forward. Yeah, that's a weird thing too. It's like competition almost doesn't exist anymore if you're really looking at it the right way. Yeah, like competition exists, but collaboration is better because if there's more people out there promoting your industry, then as a byproduct, that's going to help you in one yeah. way because you're still going to have your own unique secret sauce and take and twist to it. So I, th I think that's from personal experience, something that's even kept us afloat in challenging times right. is I've gone to all of our competitors out there and been like, Hey, I might have business to share with you. There might be right. some ways to collaborate. Where do we align? Where do we disagree? What can we uh, come together on? Whereas other people, most people, in fact, that I've talked to about this, they look at their competitors and they're like, ah, screw that guy. Like I'm never right. going to talk to him. Like right. they're in just a wall. It's there a, it, versus it's a, yeah, you have to be a little bit sophisticated. It's kind of nuanced, right? Yeah, it, you're, you're going to compete could, like hell. Yeah, but then in certain formats, you're going to collaborate. Yeah, with look ideas, at Ford versus right? Ferrari. Did you watch that movie? I love that movie. Yeah, I figured Absolutely. that would be totally up your alley. Absolutely. I actually meant to bring that up with you. Yeah, there are a whole lot of movies that have engineers. Yeah, as as one of the two lead uh, characters, right? It was, was a great a, movie. Engineer. Yeah, absolutely loved it. Loved it. But right. it's part of the case, too, is like that collaboration, yeah. but competition all in the yeah. same. Yeah. There, for, it, for greater, for a higher, higher elevation within that yeah. industry. The high tech, the yeah. high tech space. So this is like companies that make chips and computer components and the distributors yeah. and sell it. The integrators, the VARs, value added resource, that whole world. This is not new, but I don't know, 15, 20 years ago. 
they started using the term cuspeditor. Yeah. Right? Sometimes yeah, yeah. you're my customer, sometimes you're competitor. Yeah. It kind of depends. And you know, you have to be just you have to be a sophisticated business person about that, right? To know how to take advantage of it. Yeah. Right. Um, totally shift real quick, but something I was interested because because again, I'm I'm fascinated by this Al- Alibaba situation. Mm-hmm. Is that a Chinese company? Yes. Interesting. Yes. So what's your thoughts on that and also the fact that the US market won't even allow Huawei in, which is the world's largest cellular provider is Huawei, but we don't yeah. allow it in the US because it's directly tied to the Chinese government. And yeah. so that's a lot of the danger too and in kind of a weird situation is um what does that mean? What does that mean if we start doing business with them? Um, and, uh, you know, uh, us are being, you know, us, uh, customers are being monitored and all this kind of crazy stuff with that is, yeah. I mean, you know, there's, there's you... a side of that that's going to sound like I'm, uh, like skipping your question, yeah, right? but yeah. those concerns are, are valid and both people, I don't know if they're valid or not, they're held. Yeah. Right. And so I guess that, you know, I, I, we're talking about customers and competitors, right? I think the value of um, competition is that everybody focuses on the customer and provides a better solution, right? And so if those concerns are, I'm, I'm sure that, I, I don't know, I don't know. But are they though? Yeah, I don't know if, I don't know if they're valid or not. That's, it's, yeah. I, I read the same articles you do and I'm not an expert in it, right? Uh-huh. I think businesses should uh, go in with eyes open, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, if if they're general, I think that competition is good. It has a an effect. You know, it has a it, it lifts people up and mm. it creates better customer experiences. And and I just I don't know, right? I'm gonna I'm shying away from your answer, your question. Yeah, because well, I'm, I'm not I'm not, I'm not like everyone's got I, their. T- I don't I don't study that. Right? Yeah, and I'm sure there's much, there's many smart things to say about it. I just don't have them. Yeah. Right? Like you say, I, the cuspeditor, right? Is right? that the yeah. term cuspeditor? Cus- sometimes you're a customer, sometimes you're a competitor. Right. right. It's like it's like when you really break down and you start studying companies and how they're set up, or like right, um, products, services, environmental, like everyone's got their fingers and everyone else's right. stuff in one way or another. It's like everything's right. so closely tied. Yep. Uh, with each other. Um. So yeah. yeah. So I'm I'm enough of um respectful of thought leaders. I just don't want to go into somebody else's area of expertise. Right. Yeah. I mean, there's bigger questions too. There's about tech selling in China, right? Are they right. Or, or in, in regimes for the world because of IP. Yeah. IP. And are they enable, are they providing, uh, they've stolen billions and billions and billions of dollars of IP from the U S marketplace too. So it's, you know, yeah. And they're enabling whatever regimes want to do. Right. And all that. So, I'm a, uh, I'm a, I, I just, I could talk about that, but let's do it over a beer sometime. Right? <laughs> I'm about that. I don't, I don't feel like I'm informed enough and uh-huh. think about it enough to provide a, a, a really good opinion on that. Do you right? think, uh, then, then maybe this one, cause it's relevant. Do you think the channels are going, cause we're talking about globalization and all this, and you've probably seen our stock market here in the last yeah. couple of days cause of the coronavirus, which is, right. you know, do you think that's going to impact U.S. channels forever? Do you think more people are going to just be like, you know what, we're just going to bring these that we've been reliant on China. We're just going to bring it to the U.S. Yeah. And build it here and find a way to do it cheaper and find a way that's that's going to like, you know, work. Um, even though people outsource to China for cheap. Yeah. 
labor and everything. So international supply chains are, I think, you know, it's a mixture of costs and risk, mm. right? And so, um, I I think that um, if you can manufacture things overseas and you can achieve some cost savings out of that, it's a quality. That's that's a factor in 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 support of a global supply chain. Mm-hmm. And the even before the virus, I read an article. I think it was in the Economist. Uh, which which was it wasn't the main part of the article but somewhere in the article it talked about kind of the resurgence of local supply chains and the, and one of the ideas was that in a in a uh, natural uh, uh, disaster right or some sort of occurrence you might need some of your supply coming from close to home so it doesn't have to cross an ocean right mm. and so I think that there you know, people that are that manage supply chains like that which is more the buy side I'm more on the sell side of, of how channels work Right, the the risk will the risk factors will change, right, and they'll they'll make adjustments in where they source products overseas. Yeah, that's interesting. I wonder if we'll get to the point in the U.S. where we're able to have cheap production and labor like it is in Mexico and China and whatever. Because yes, globalization is a factor, um, but still we're still in our you know hub U.S. Yeah. European markets. Mexican markets, like all that stuff. So, yeah. Um, yeah, it's interesting. Also kind of not my area, but I can, yeah. you can see it, right? It's, it's, yeah. You have to make a rational business decision, and it's based on your cost, the qual- the quality of the products you can create, how you identify, how you define, and how you manage risks, right? Mm-hmm. And the, you know, again, not my area, so I'm speaking out of turn, but I think there's a little bit of a manufacturing resurgence, and some of that is driven by the uh, corporate income tax and things like that, right? But it's also driven by automation, right? And the ability to uh, create manufacturing plants here that are more automated, right? Mm. And so, you know, you if you went overseas years ago for labor considerations, right? Maybe there's a, for people who would do this for a living, maybe there's a balance, you can come back now and be more automated. And so your costs are beneficial if you come back, right? Mm. Again, not my area, but it does affect sort of the the channels, especially on the supply side, right? How you're supplying your businesses. Yeah, it's interesting when you let the free market do what the free market's going to do. Yeah. It's like we were able to hire on two new people last year that we wouldn't have been able otherwise right. without the tax, you know, um, changes that right. have happened. And it's like, you know, that's a whole nother conversation over right. a beer, probably. Yeah, well, you know, um, it's kind of like the whole the whole discussion about uh, conscious capitalism. Yeah. Right? Which yeah. is, which is um, positioned as something new, and it's it's really not right. I think that businesses are stewards of their resources, right? And they have to provide a customer experience, a customer solution that is high quality and it is um, you know efficient, efficiently made. And businesses don't exist in a vacuum, right? They're part of our community, right? Right. And I think you can read. Um, I can't quote it, but you know, if you think about Henry Ford, who you wouldn't necessarily think of as a conscious capitalist, right? Yeah. What he did with the products he made was he gave mobility to people. It had a huge societal impact, right? So I think that conscious capitalism today and social impact and those sort of things, in part it's, it's popular because uh, I guess that's supposedly sort of the next generation's values they want it. But I think it's also just natural. Businesses exist within a, a community Right, and they have to be responsible citizens, and so they're still going to be driven by the profit motive. But thinking about how you can contribute to society and where you fit in society, 
the benefits you provide by providing wages to people, by providing um, a, 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 a satisfactory and encouraging kind of work environment, uh, if you're, uh, how you encourage your employees to be members of the community, right? A lot of small businesses, you know, sponsored little league teams, right? Remember that, right? Joe's Body Shop, yeah, right? Yeah. That's kind of conscious capitalism. Right? Yeah. You're just kind of supporting your community and being part of it. It's trendy, but I don't see it as political. It's a very interesting topic because conscious capitalism, I agree with you too, by the way. Everyone is talking about how the millennial, or just use millennials for an example, yeah. they demand products and services that have a conscious tie to them or some right um uh what's like a like a impact right social impact tie to it but i think generally people are good by nature for the majority of people and that's something everyone's wanted from the beginning of time with people doing business is they want a good um they want companies that are doing good and providing value now the difference is technology has highlighted and amplified the voice of the millennial gen and the younger right. and consumers right. nowadays. So now companies have to make those shifts right. quicker because it's but, the, they want to attract the employees and they want to serve yeah. them as customers. And so they've given voice to that yes. in a way which is different than yeah. those kind of things were given voice to yeah. a generation ago. Yeah. But the companies that are unethical and have done unethical things, even in the past when they weren't as the curtain wasn't right. drawn as much, they're, they're so caught up with them right. in certain ways. And uh, and so um, it's interesting. Yeah, it's good. Yeah. It's a good thing. Well, I think a, but, a lot of uh, um, special well, businesses of all size, but the conversation I've been having recently, if you want to attract somebody to your business, mm-hmm. right? And a lot of companies are using social media to talk about their innovative projects mm-hmm. and their social contributions. And they're doing that because that's how people check them out, right? They look for their social media, yep. right? And if it's sincere, if it's not smoke and mirrors, right, then you can you have a better job of attracting people. Mm-hmm. And you also have a, a way of connecting your products and services in the marketplace, right? Mm-hmm. So people understand your business and they understand you and you get people that want to come to work for you and your people want to stay, right? And there's a responsible side to that, which is, in a sense, nothing new, right? Mm. I think at the C-suite level, I've known businesses, my clients over the years when I was doing consulting, that they encourage their C-suite people to get involved in associations and other sort of uh, charities and that sort of thing, right? Because it was it was good for them and it was good for the industry. You're kind of being and a responsible corporate citizen. Ambassadors, like ambassadors yeah. of the company, but also doing yeah. good at the same time and yeah. highlighting that good. Yeah. I read I read about a, um, I, and I, I should probably have the citation for this because I don't, I, I, I read about this somewhere or maybe I heard it on another podcast. I'll get better at that. <laughs> remember who, the citations and giving them exactly. Yeah. But it was a sports team, right? And it was a sports team who felt like they they hired the same, they recruited the same athletes, they had the same training regimen as all their competitors, they had the same nutritional counseling for all of their athletes, and so they didn't really feel like they had a way to differentiate on that. And what they did was they sent out their athletes in the off season, I think, maybe during the regular season, to go and work with charitable organizations. And what that did was it built a sense of camaraderie and mission, mm. right? Because they saw that the these charitable organizations, what their mission was, was about helping people live their lives better, right? And it helped them gel as a team and create aspirations as the team. And now they're very, very successful, right? So that's, uh, I mean, they did that because they wanted to win games, right? It wasn't, uh, 
they weren't a charity, but it was, you know, drawing on sort of some of the lessons and motivations in the in the social side of things to make their organization stronger and to differentiate it. Yeah. Right. It's interesting in the world where we talk about scale and yeah. rapid growth, the ones who are really winning and successful, the tri the tried and true of doing the things that are unscalable right. are what make them great. Yeah. Well, I believe you also know. that I, we say this in innovate to dominate. Yeah. That you know, in today's world with things cha changing so fast and knowledge being built to ev everybody, your products and your services are not going to differentiate you as a business. You might be ahead of the curve, but people are going to catch up. Right? Yeah, 100%. So it's really your culture and your business processes that differentiate you, mm. right? And so that's all about people. It's about human-centric innovation, right? And, um, and it's important, right? And so the things about conscious capitalism, that's not all that is to be said about human-centric innovation, but it's a big part of it, right? How do we, how do we uh, attract people? How do we align ourselves with our social, social goals of, our, of where we live and where we work, right? I think it's a natural thing. Definitely. Well, this has been great. Any so um, are we almost done? That, we've done an hour. Already. I thought you we've told me we had an two hour. So I'm just far. getting started. No, Wait, where are we at right now? <laughs> yeah, we've done over an hour so far. Oh my god! Can you believe that? No, I can't. It's, not, it's like a it's like a time warp in here. How'd I do? Was this good? Was well, we're helpful? not done yet. Oh. I still got okay. one more question for oh, you, okay. at least. Okay. Um, but you're done great, man. You're killing yeah. it. Yeah, this is, I mean, we could fun. talk for hours and hours. We have. Yeah. we're just doing it now with I know. Yeah. Uh, I think it's good too because we've gotten some of the other stuff out of the yeah. way. We're able to get to a lot of meat, but yeah. in in the in you know time we have remaining, anything else that you think uh, you absolutely want to touch on? Make sure that we hit here. So I, or you I just want to share, if you don't mind. Yeah, I, I would like to kind of say what's in innovate to dominate. Sure, right? please. So um, every chapter is a piece of the story. The first chapter is called "Enable the Future of Business." This is about how you talk to your customers to understand the innovations you can offer them because mm -hmm. you can't ask them. If you could ask your customer what innovative product, we'd all be innovators, right? right? So, and I and I draw heavily on Clayton Christensen's uh, jobs to be done methodology for that, right? But it's enable the future of business for your customers, and as you do that, you'll chart a course for your own business. The next thing you have to do is, if, you, if that gives you some insights for your business model, your products, your services going forward, the next thing you have to do is think about how to go to market. So we have three scenario analysis chapters. The first one is is about how would you go to market if all markets were virtual, right? The second one is about revitalizing the traditional value chain, whatever that is in your industry. Oftentimes it's manufacturers through distributors, but there's different ones also, dealers, contractors, your own direct sales force. So how do you revitalize what exists? And the third, one, the third scenario analysis chapter is a call for human-centric innovation, right? And we show some statistics that say that while the benefits of technology innovation are growing exponentially, if you define them with, if you design your technology innovations with humans at heart, at the beginning, how they're going to use your product, what their aspirations are, you get even more, right? And it's kind of so much is driven by technology today that the idea of human-centric innovation is novel. Seems obscure, yeah. Kind of novel. Yeah. A lot right? of people try, still so try yeah. to automate a lot of pieces of their business that, like, right. even the sales right. side of the business, people what, try to automate what, the, themselves what, to death almost. Yeah, it's what can you do when you in the way that two people working together in the real world, right? Yeah. That's human-centric innovation, right? right? Sometimes it's emotional intelligence and things like that. So if you have a sales force that has to learn data, mm. right, so they can work with their customers in a data-rich environment, you can also teach them kind of the tools of emotional intelligence with empathy in a business sense because the customers are just as stressed about, uh, about data as they are. 
So that kind of uh, the twin values of I can help you work with data and I've got some emotional intelligence so I can do some listening and help you get to your stress points. That's kind of human-centric innovation to enable the big push towards data. Mm. The next chapter is um, called uh, Connect, Create, uh, Collaborate. And it's really a call for an innovation ecosystem because the farther you push your business in new directions, the farther you're moving to things you don't know. So an innovation ecosystem is a best practice of innovative companies, right? And it's who has knowledge and who has services that you can use and how do you attract them to work with you in a collaborative way. And then the last, the last chapter is the title of the book, Innovate to Dominate. It just goes to the point I made earlier that there really is not a deep body of knowledge about B2B innovation and what's going to differentiate your business is your culture and your processes. Part of that is about how you innovate as a business. So the last chapter is just a collection of examples about what companies are doing to kind of move down that path. Yeah. So that's innovate to dominate. That's awesome. Thank man. you. Th- thank you. Thank for you. That. And it, well, in a, in a world of uh, people talking about AI and automation and technology, it something that surprised me so much about our conversations is how much you're leaned into like really the human capital and the yeah. creativity side of things, yeah. which is interesting that in the world of all these things, that's the one thing that you can't really commoditize. Yes. And that's what one, that's like what people have at their disposal. You can have the best tech, yeah. best innovation, digital transformation, all these fancy, you know, words, but at the end of the day, innovation and human capital and human centric you know, processes yeah. is is, is uh, really what wins. Well, and Tim Cook, Apple CEO, yeah. has this quotation, which I'm going to paraphrase again. I won't get it quite right. I need, <laughs> to work, I need to work on that as a skill. But basically, he says that technology is great, but technology doesn't want anything. Yeah. What we want is up to us. And wanting aspiration is a human trait. It's not an artificial intelligence trait. Yeah. Artificial intelligence can optimize, but it doesn't want to do anything. So another big part of innovation is deciding what you want to do, right? What do you want your products and services to do for your customers and the society at large? Where can people find the book? At NAW. Uh, I will provide a link for you. Can we get that out? Sure. Out and send can, us a link. Send yes. uh, Julius a link and details right. and everything. We'll get it published yep. up in the episode. And if there's a way that they can reach back to you for this too and they want to yep. chat with, with you and I or me about this book, we can do that too. Do you have any discount codes or anything we can promote out uh, for the book? I do not. Not okay. at the moment. No. Uh, and Amazon too. It's on Amazon, isn't uh, it? I don't think so. No? No, no, no. Because it, it's... Um, it's very a, technical. Yeah, it's it's a resource. Yeah, right. So yeah. it's more expensive than a business book you'd buy you, on Amazon. Is this in the universities? I'm working on that. All right. Right. It's really designed. Not I'll talk about that channel yeah. strategy. I need help. I need yeah. absolute help there. You know, a book on trends is valid for what, like about a half hour today. Right. Yeah. So this is really a re- ongoing resource that can be used um, going forward. Right? It's an ever evergreen resource for innovation. Yeah. It's like a one one of one of the uh, businesses that bought it really liked me told it it's like a master's in innovation in a box right so that's cool man there's a lot in there right it's not a light read uh-huh. but it's uh, it's got a lot of value it's got oh about 50 distributor stories kind of paragraph long descriptions of where they're taking their business right has lots of re- of citations to other research it just kind of pulls it together it's really a roadmap for innovation. And how can people get in, uh, uh, get into contact with you? My email address is mark, M-A-R-K, dot dancer, like one who dances, at 
uh, N4BI, that's network, the number four business innovation, but the letters, and the number four BI.com. Okay, we'll get that in the links also and everything. Thank you so much, brother. Really appreciate it. Appreciate you coming down. Guys, for listening, thanks as always. Make sure you subscribe, leave a review, and we'll see you on the next one. Love y'all. Bye.